am Doug Broner, and this is the first episode of The Toast, presented by the Ag Center at 59. I'm here with Keith Yamamoto, and we are really excited today. I am interviewing um, Ed Dieger, who is also my grandfather, and I am very proud of him and feel very fortunate. I'm also here with Siren Vanderdusen, um, a relative of mine as well. Both of them have uh, been in the dairy business almost all their life and now are enjoying watching their kids do that. And so um, Keith uh, and myself are partners in some businesses, but we wanted to get this podcast going here to really uh, reach out to people and uh, let them know about how passionate we are about agriculture and what we see uh, what some of the greats have done in agriculture, let people know about that, as well as what we see in the future. And the, there's going to be other episodes. This is the first one. So, Keith, you have any comment on that before we let Mr. Dieger, which is my grandpa, and that's how I'm going to call him from here on out, um, get yeah, talking? Yeah, I mean, this is all about uh, being successful in agriculture, being young and energetic and ambitious in California agriculture. And uh, the biggest motivation for me is you look at the generations before us and uh, how much they were able to accomplish and what better way to start the toast with the first episode with two legends like the two of you guys in here. Um, nothing's more motivating than a guy that built a business using old Johnny Popper tractors and you know, still remembering um, remnants of the, of the world wars. So this is an honor for the both of us. And, I look forward to learning a lot from you guys in the little bit of time we get with you guys today. Yeah, so Grandpa, let's start out just a, some brief history on where you were born, your family, and just let us know, I mean, kind of what got you going. I was born in Bellflower, California, and uh, on the Palo Verde Road, and uh, my dad had a small dairy there at that time, they were milking about 35, 40 cows. Me and my mom, they milked them by hand. And, uh, and uh, then they uh, gradually built up a little bit till an uncle of mine started working for them. And then they were milking about 50 cows. And uh, I, was, I started school in uh, 1936 at the Valley Christian School, the first year it opened. And uh, I went there while my dad had a dairy and I'd come home and have to do chores like raking in hay or clipping wires on the bales, just things like that. And pretty soon I remember my dad had an old cow in the back that was kind of crippling. It was a good producing cow and he says, you're going to learn to milk it. I'm, he milked on one side and I milked on the other side. And that's learned how to hand milk there. And, and as I grew up, I went and uh, I quit school at the age of 15. Labor was hard to get at that time. And uh, I just, uh, it wasn't quite as important a high school education at that time as it was later. Now even a college education would be a, a thing for our kids to have. But anyway, I did that and worked hard. And, and uh, then when I, was, I got married to Actually, my brother-in-law is sitting across here from a wonderful girl by the name of Frederica Vanderdusen. And uh, I was in the service. We moved to Texas, stayed there until I got discharged, San Antonio, and then came home and 
went to work the second day I was home. I thought I'd have a few days, but my dad says, you might as well get started. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm there and I melt and used to unload hay trucks by hand to learn a, to earn a little extra money yet, saved everything we could until uh, I was about 25. And uh, then I started in the dairy business, bought my dad out, milking 80 cows. And a year, a year later, I was milking 100. Did that for a while, and sold, uh, sold, sold the cows. Got a, went to a creamery that where I could keep increasing. And uh, started with 260, and finally down to 500 cows. I was still in the Artesia area, land, uh, didn't have a lot of acres, 20 acres with 500 cows plus dry cows on it, and then bought land in the Chino Valley. And uh, about a year and a half later, started building a dairy there to milk 500 cows, but I set it up so we could double, double that amount, and that's how we continue to grow. That's kind of... I went finally up to 1600 there and got our first place in the San Joaquin Valley and uh, had raising young stock over there and then uh, Art got married and he moved up there he started the first dairy there and Marty moved up Marty fortunately unfortunately got uh, paralyzed there so we had that to work with for a while but anyway Marty started doing quite well and he started uh, running a heifer ranch and the farming and gradually bought more land, started raising a lot of our own crops and uh, later on some of the others moved up there and uh, built another place and then finally sold our dairy and land in Chino and went out there together, all together and Kobe and I retired to a house there. I was around 62 years old at that time, figured I'd had enough. <laughs> and uh, enjoyed watching the kids all grow. And that's kind of where I am now. Mr. Diego, just to give people an idea of you know what it takes to do all that, you said it pretty quick, and there's a lot that happened in that period of time. What type of uh, work days did you have? What time did you start? What time did you end? Well, you know, what did it look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, when did you eat? Like, <laughs> how did that all work out? Well, originally, when the smaller started at 2 o'clock in the morning till 6, 30, 7 o'clock, and ate and went and took a short nap and then you got up and went to work again at two you know did our did our own milking and then I went larger and I was able to get more men to milk the cows and then I would do the relief milking to check out if everything was working and yeah you got bigger I didn't have time for that anymore so mm -hmm. it just more or less management and I did all the the uh, uh, sterile uh, work of checking the cows out I would call it the hand, the arm, arm push, <laughs> and uh, did that for a lot of years. Enjoyed doing all of that until I was able to quit doing that and just working up. It's long days, mm -hmm. long nights. You know, you, um, you grew the dairy. Obviously, never stopped growing the dairy. What? What growth level was the hardest for you? Was it from 80 cows to 100? Was it 500 to 1,000? Like, where, where did you feel like you started to get some momentum on with your growth? Uh, from 100 to 250, yeah. I figured I could still keep working as hard as I could. And then I realized it was management and more record keeping. I knew every cow prior to that. 
and uh, did start having some records through a veterinarian. Told me he should start keeping some records on it when he did do his monthly checkup. And uh, so that's when I realized it was more and more the business end of it. Mm. Still enjoyed working, but uh, not as much, not as hard. Right. And I kept pretty well busy. Work. Especially when we started a night shift, it went around the clock. So that was going. And how many years was it between 100 and 250 cows that you had to put in uh, to get that? Three, three years. Three years. Mm -hmm. of working basically 16-hour days. Yeah, and then uh, it was about three years again before I went to 500. And then from 500, uh, probably 20, 20 years of growing to a number of dairies. Mm. Yeah. What, um, I was talking to your daughter, which is my mother, yesterday, and I asked her attributes, and she... Um, she stated that you were always very methodical and planned out the way you wanted to do things. And um, I find myself in business decisions, sometimes we make them on emotion, right? And what were, how would you reason when you would decide to, I'm going to expand or I'm going to buy more cows or more land or what, or build another dairy? What? What drove you to that, or what was your process and how to evaluate those decisions? Well, I never wanted to be more than 50% in debt. If, I, if, I, if the deal was 100000 I wanted to be at least worth 50000 When I originally started, it was two-thirds debt and one-third uh, of my own money. But in a year, I was the other way already, and I just never wanted to go and debt more than 50% of my net worth. And I've always uh, pushed that to the kids as well. Mm -hmm. I would to anybody. Okay. That's a great. But oh. then if you had more than 50% equity, would you then go into more debt to grow? Yeah. Always. Yeah, you had to. Yeah, otherwise, otherwise you couldn't grow. <laughs> Good point. Uncle Sipe, let me, let me ask you a question right now. Um, was your story Chino, starting in Chino too, moving up kind of the same way, or a little your background? Well, I was born in uh, the Netherlands in 1942, and uh, uh, my father was a milk peddler in Rotterdam, and after the German occupation, uh, there was really nothing left. And I was one of 11 kids, and my mom was pregnant, and so they decided to go to America. So when I was four years old, we came to America, uh, we landed in um, New York, we trained to Los Angeles, arrived in the evening, and the very next day my father and my older brother were milking cows. And uh, that's kind of the story of how the family started in the dairy business, because European immigrants, when they came here, they didn't know the language, they didn't know the culture. About the only thing they could do was dig potatoes, watch sheep, or milk cows. And so my family, we went into the cows. Uh, my uncle George of Anderham sponsored us. And my father, three years later, was able to buy 50 cows in Bellflower. And he started from that and he retired in 1969. He had a couple dairies in Artesia, one in Chino. And when he retired, I bought the dairy in Chino with 260 cows. That was in 19, uh, 1969. And uh, just from there, I stayed in the dairy business for about 40 years. I have three sons. 
Uh, I got married in 1967. I, uh, I was in the Marine Corps when I was 20. And after serving a stint uh, is when I got married. And then uh, my three boys, they're all in the dairy business, two of them in Colorado, and uh, one here in El Nido. Uh, we love the dairy business. We grew up in it. It's a wonderful way of life. And I could probably second everything that uh, my brother-in-law had said. You know, the, uh, the key to success is to not get yourself too deep into debt. Because the moment you get too deep into debt, you're out of control. And I know that in the 1980s, the philosophy was borrow as much as you can because you'll pay back with cheap dollars. And that got me into trouble for a couple of years. So I think uh, Ed's philosophy of 50% debt gives you a cushion, it's a safety, it's very wise. And so I really uh, salute that. I, that very interesting coming from both of you guys on that. And uh, I, debt, debt equity is something that's talked about a lot. And um, it's been some stated by my parents as well as my grandfather, my father-in-law. And us as young people, we want to keep growing because it makes us feel good. But I appreciate that because I don't mind leverage that much. But my grandpa did tell me that having a little debt makes you get out of bed in the morning. Right, grandpa? <laughs> and something I was talking to your son yesterday, uh, Uncle Sipe and Mike, and uh, he said you had a stint in real estate, or that's a passion of yours. And I kind of want to talk to both of you guys, uh, my grandpa as well. We were talking on the way over here, on driving here, and um, my grandpa, I know, did a lot of land transactions. And I didn't know you were in the real estate business. Um, acquiring your first piece of ground or any piece of ground for any young person or anybody now, it, it starts with that. And so just... I guess maybe you can elaborate on real estate, how you've seen it grown in California, as well as Grandpa. How did you make decisions on when you were looking at a piece of ground and how you knew how it would work for you and your companies at that time? No. I thought you were referring it, to No, both. I would, I would love to hear from either well, one. Well, yeah. then I'll go just, just for a moment. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, in 1982, I, uh, I was hired by my older brother who had a real estate business. It was a dairy and real estate brokerage. And uh, our primary business was selling herds, uh, heifer programs, and doing leases and partnership agreements. And that's I joined him in 1982, and about seven, eight years later, a developer started becoming interested in the area and so we started selling land, dairy land, to the developers. And that was a very heady time, a very interesting time. And I, I really look back on that with a lot of relish. I had my own firm at that time and I retired here about six years ago. I you know, was old enough and I had enough of it. But there's one thing that I noticed amongst the dairy industry and the dairy community and that was parents who held on too long. It was not a good thing. The young people, they, they want to try things. They want to bump their nose. They want to make their own mistakes. And when the father or the parents uh, hang on too long, it discourages the young folks. And I've seen that too many times that it worked against uh, the family. I've always believed that just let them go. Uh, you know, when they hit the wall, they'll find out. And when they make a mistake, they'll pay the, uh, the, the penalty. And uh, that's always been my philosophy, not because I'm that wise, but because I saw how it worked the other way. 
Grandpa. Your, I mean, your thoughts on that? Oh, I was the very same way, yeah. I think so. Too many parents, years ago, they'd let the kids keep working there. And uh, yeah, Grandpa was, wasn't, he wasn't too ambitious to increase. So they kept the kids working in the barn and never increasing. And they figured pretty soon it was time for those kids got married. And, uh, or, you know, they were men then getting married and there wasn't enough money to, because he didn't milk enough cows to start them in. And so they ended up in different businesses and just couldn't get started. Where, like uh, Stripes, this site did, or and his dad did, or I did, uh, just uh, got, got things going. And, uh, yeah. So, so, Two, two questions, and I think what you just said, about you guys are talking about kids, and I know all your kids are in, most of your kids are in similar fields in the dairy or farming still, and um, I was talking to my mom last night, and me and Keith were talking about this today, and um, my mom stated something that you always did, and uh, she said you conducted business in front of your kids. Yeah, I did. We always stopped business. Never hit anything. Some people couldn't figure that out. You kids know, your kids know everything. What's your, ask you what your net worth was, and they did. Yeah, they did. I mean, maybe not to a teen, but yeah, they did. If I was gonna buy a herd, they knew the price I was going, stacked up, start taking them along a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah, like I used to take you along on, on things. Yeah. You know the price of every tractor sold. Yeah, so, I I believe that um, one thing my grandpa always took me when I was a young kid, and I credit um, him in a lot of decisions I make now, is he would always tell me to know the numbers, right? And uh, why, why are you paying that? Why is that? He'd kick me in the butt if I didn't pick up the penny, and I appreciate that now. And uh, so... I have to really tip my hat to him on that and I just think it is so valid and so important that you involve your kids in that. It's I'm a father now. I know Keith you're going to be a father to a, you got a young one on the way and I training them in that young, in that farming or dairy or whatever agriculture experience is um so important. So Let's talk on um, a couple of things on how you involved your kids. I, I know you talked to them in business, but what did you expect out of them and how, how you, um, what were your expectations out of your kids, whether um, how they were working for you and things on the dairy? What, 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 are, what were expectations that you had for your children? Oh, I expected them to be totally involved. Um, I remember Mark, that's my oldest, uh, when he was five years old, he was uh, pushing in hay with the tractor, and the problem was he uh, he didn't have enough strength to push the clutch down, so he'd have to hang on to the steering wheel, stand up, and push the clutch down if he wanted to stop. But that was at five years old, and in those days we that was before twine, so we had wires, and so hardware disease was something we dealt with with the cows, and so I'd send the kids out to uh, pick up any wires that are left in the mangers. And I was told that if I found any that were there after they did it, uh, we would make wire soup and they would have to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
complete involvement always. They, they were able to do the milk house when they were seven, eight years old. And of course, when these, these kids become teenagers, they like to go out late at night. And so the, the cure to that is to get them out at 4.30 in the morning and uh, have them do work. That, uh, that seemed to work pretty well. Yeah, I think the same thing. I mean, I remember yet uh, going to a wedding. I forget, I think it was one of the family members and Rocky had a little bit too much. He was about 15 or 16. I don't know, he was getting to get in the car and he puked next to the car and he said, I'll never have a drink again in my life, Dad. And uh, I said, well, maybe you, you won't, hopefully, maybe you don't. But I said, you're, you're working in the morning, you're getting up. I, do I have to? I said, you are. And I remember a few of them getting up once in a while in the morning that they weren't feeling too good. Yeah, so, and I had the same thing when I was younger one time. Uh, I was going to go to the New, a New Year's parade with a friend of mine, and we'd had a few too many, and I was going to go after work. I was going to, he was going to pick me up, but I, I had to milk the cows. My dad said, you're milking. He said, I don't have nobody else to milk those cows. I milked them, and... I couldn't wait to get in bed. He came by and I says, just go ahead, go to that New Year's parade. I says, I'm not going. And we actually had a date, but uh, I said, just tell her, I'm not going. <laughs> so, but we had to work. And that's, I think, like Sipes says. I remember Sipes saying, he lay down in the machine, machine room once in a while. <laughs> and so Pop came, wake me up. So. <laughs> Uh, you know the overarching thing with the dairy business and what's so attractive is it is truly a, a family enterprise. Uh, back in Chino, you know, in the early 70s when the dairies were built, the homes were built right next to the milking barn. Yeah. And the reason was dad milked the cows, mom did the milk house, and the kids fed the hay. And it, it, just think about it. You know, what what is comparable today? People now go off to work. They... The kids usually don't even know what the parents do for work, but there it was. Uh, it was really a family enterprise, and it's just like Ed said too. Uh, when he was thinking of making a deal, they always talked business in front of the kids. What a fabulous learning experience! I mean, what kid today experiences that? Yeah, rarely do you hear about debt to equity structure in a seven or eight year old's uh, conversation. Only Doug's kid, or <laughs> <laughs> you'd be amazed what they understand at that age, though. Yeah, I think you can learn the most and the fastest. I think, yeah, the dairy industry and and not just the dairy industry, the farming. One thing I was really fortunate, and one thing um, my grandpa really um, created for us is I'm pretty lucky. We were talking about how many. Uh, grandchildren he has uh, I don't know if he could say the exact number it would be pretty amazing and great grandchildren and it was really fun because we always knew we we all kind of worked a day and we would get to go over to his house and swim or whatnot and I, I think let's talk you know what was the importance of family involvement because you guys worked together you played together you ate together uh, church together and you did everything together and I, I think um Tell me the importance of that bonding time that you guys had and how that really helped in your business as well as your family and for the longevity of your family. Well, I really enjoyed, all of our kids are basically involved, even our oldest daughter and her husband, they had trees for a while and they retired now, and, but uh, they, they later got involved. 
he wasn't involved at first, but later on he, he was interested. So every one of them have been, and most of the grandkids are all seem to be involved. But, uh, I think now that they should go to school a little longer than they did years ago, because I think there's a, everything is more on computer and what have you, technical than it was then. But, uh, we still had to be up to date on a lot of the techni technical things at that time too. And the ones that weren't were left behind. It's the old story of left behind. Mm. And that's what happened to a lot of them. I, uh, you know, I talked to the dairy you built, uh, where my dad is now, um, was one of the state-of-the-art dairies at that time, correct? Uh, you guys were one of the first with transponders, and I remember De Laval out there and doing a bunch of stuff. You always seemed really progressive. You were one of the first in feeding TMR, and so not necessarily focused on dairy or farming or any particular farming, but why? I mean, what what gave you that notion that I needed to try something new, Grandpa? I mean, you were all you always seemed to be pushing the the buttons on that. Well, Henry Ford, you know, I went from a Model A to a 32 with a V8 in it, and uh, he kept, you know, increasing and changing his cars. And a few of the old companies that didn't progress, that they were totally out of business. Where General Motors kept going, there was a number. Kaiser, it, it didn't last long because it didn't seem to innovate anything new. And so there are more car companies, if I look back, that uh, were there, and they didn't seem to progress and that's I think the important thing is to progress and to treat your uh, your labor right too I think uh, I have men that work for me years ago I still run into once in a while they've gotten businesses and so on and uh, they've always appreciated it. I shared with my with my workers too I know I remember a guy by the name of Tavis and Gervin Asma they mail for me a long time and then I, they'd, say, they'd ask me the price of the cows I'd pay and I'd tell them why not and uh, they always appreciated that. So keeping so, transparency yeah. with your people, mm -hmm. right? That's awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, Doug, you, you brought up something really interesting. You were talking about how Ed was pretty much on the cutting edge, and it was. Uh, there was a, a long, long period of time where dairies were dry dairies, where we would just have cows, where we would milk them, feed them, and breed them, and we purchased all the feed. And that worked at Bellflower, it worked at Artesia, it worked in Chino. And then the dairy industry changed to where corn silage became a major part of uh, the feed ration. And down in Chino, Southern California, there simply wasn't the land to do that. Uh, Ed saw that time, he saw the change, he saw the need for change, and he was on the cutting edge of that. And today you'll see dairies, very, very few dairies that are not farming uh, along with the dairy. And it's, uh, it, was a, it was a big, big change. And it kind of happened under the radar. Yeah, uh, that's we're seeing that now, right? Um, in irrigation, right, Keith? You're going from flood to drip. I mean, yeah, you got to be thing, able to change. Right? Yeah, things are changing so much faster now. Technology just grows at a, such a rapid rate, and you know, it's not changing the type of carburetor that they're using on a car anymore. Now it's aerial imagery. It's you know how fast can a computer go, but. I think it's more impressive the innovations you make when you didn't have those tools prior. You know, trying to figure out how to run that carousel milk barn or, you know, 
going to vertically integrated dairy where you're growing all your own feed, you know, that's, that's pretty revolutionary. Um, my question for you guys, and you guys are obviously very well connected, is what do you guys think about today's agricultural landscape and the different methods and practices that we're using now compared to what you guys had used in the past? I'm going to get better at a site. I've kind of given up. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've had my year. I've turned 90 here. So. Oh, really? Oh, really? Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I thank oh, God okay. for all the years he's given me and all the people I've known and the family I've had. I've been blessed with two great wives, both from the same backgrounds, both of them religious and what countries they were from. So I've been blessed that way. I've just been a very blessed man. Mm. Well, I'll tell you, I still get intimidated when I'm around you, Ed, so don't uh, put yourself down. <laughs> uh, you I, intimidate me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All the truth comes out. When I look at the, the dairy, or the, yeah, the dairy industry today, uh, agriculture in general, uh, as Keith said, things are changing incredibly fast. Uh, it's not only with the irrigation where we're saving 40 to 60% of the water that we used to do, although drip irrigation, Keith, uh, does not recharge the groundwater. So there's kind of a reaction to the action. Always, yeah. Yeah. But then when you look at the dairy industry, my goodness, I was one of the first ones, as Ed was, to breed artificial. Yeah. We, we thought that we were so smart. And nowadays you have genomic testing. You can breed the top 10% of your herd to gender-specific semen and get heifers that are many, many generations ahead of what otherwise would be. It's on the one hand exciting, and on the other hand, it's kind of scary because where does it end? Yeah, How far can it go? Uh, you know, people today are milking 5,000, 6,000, 8,000 cows on a dairy. What, what will we see, 20,000, 50? You know, I don't know, but uh, the change has been dramatic. And uh, I guess one thing we can either, you know, it's kind of like riding a roller coaster. You either go with it and enjoy it, or you gnash your teeth and go, ah, and your stomach comes up to your, your throat. So I, I think the way to do it is go for it and give it all you can. Thank you. That was, I, that's what we're seeing in farming too now. It, it seems like a lot more consolidation. Farms are bigger. People who weren't willing to change are selling, right? Um, so you have to either give in or find the opportunity, right? Um, Grandpa, one question. You, you you started in Chino, which was a more, you, you didn't have as much farm ground there, right? Things like that. You were, you were still milking a lot of cows, but you made the decision then to come up to uh, Chowchilla, Merced, Madera County, and you were focused primarily on dairy, and as you still were, but when you had to change that aspect of adding another dimension to your company, such as farming, how did you, you know, build a team around that? What were the decisions that made you come up here as you started buying ground, developing? What were some of the the hard the things you learned from that as you were making a change from not just being a dairyman, but to being a, quite a large farmer? Well, uh, originally I wanted to go from Artesia 
to uh, to uh, the Bakersfield area. Uh, it's seen dairies going up there. Marion Preece, he was one of the bigger dairies up there. Seen that and a few other dairies. And our milk plant, <coughs> Jersey made, wouldn't let us move up there. We had to move to uh, Chino, and uh, and they also required us how to build the dairy so it looked right, and uh, so they'd be they put our signs up. To, to, on the, who we're shipping our milk to, and they just wanted to be proud of, of their dairies. And they just said if they were up north, they couldn't watch the management of it. Mm -hmm. And they had field men that would come out and watch, which are sometimes a pain in the butt, the guys were, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. So. All inspectors are. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what I was, you know, the main question I was asking is, you were dairy and then you became a farmer, right? Large farming up here. What was the the big differences you've seen between being a dairyman and then transitioning to developing ground, ripping, um, and thing, buying properties, what you were doing up here versus down south, and, and the change you had to make as a company together, right? I just always enjoyed farming, how people did things. I did. We had farming even in Artesia when I was a kid, and I just loved that. At that time, they had to mower behind a horse. But I just loved watching it, raking alfalfa hay and stuff. So it was always really a, that I just really enjoyed. And my dad en enjoyed it. He never did, but he kind of always really would have liked to have farmed. Because he did, and you know, in Holland, that's mm -hmm. what they did. Milk cows and they raised their own feed. And my dad always liked that idea. He used to like to go to the state of Washington, some of his friends there, and he just liked doing that. And so that just got me interested. Um, a lot of the ground that you developed out here, a lot of people said couldn't be farmed, right? It was tough ground. It was uh, alkali, they say. They say it was tumbleweed ground. I heard when you came up there, there was cats moving, rippers, I mean, pulling another ripper. I heard you. I heard it would wake you and Grandma up in the middle of yeah. the night because hardpan would be hitting... Yeah. What and my father-in-law always said, he said, what your grandfather did was right, and it, it sounds like you didn't just buy ground; you made the decision to turn it into a good asset. So, talk a little bit about how you made those decisions to invest back into that property, right? Well, I know the piece I bought was pretty fair; it was permanent pasture, three hundred seventy acres. And there's one what we call the rotten 40 out of that. It was just alkali. And uh, Samuelson, he, uh, Mr. Samuelson, he uh, said, you get it, just rip it and put the jip on those spots. He says, I'll mark them. He had little white flies. And he just says, get a, get a four foot. They didn't have the six foot at that time. Get that four foot ripper in there. And he says, you watch that ground turn around. And he says, but between manure and that jip, and he says, you'll do it. And we did. Yeah. It oh. took about three years, and it was producing. You couldn't tell that between the other. But the old saying is, if it's once rotten ground, you'd let it go out over a number of years, it'd be rotten ground again. Yeah. Maybe there's some truth to that. I believe that. But if you keep investing back in your asset, it comes. Yeah. Really interesting. Keith, what do you think of that? Uh, I mean, as you're seeing, we're, we're looking at ground in different areas, right, to plant trees or do whatever we're doing. We have to be more strategic with the water. I mean, elaborate on that maybe a little bit, how you feel 
to that question. Yeah, luckily for us, Doug, we've been able to see a lot of different types of soil, a lot of different areas, a lot of problems. And, you know, there's just something to be said about creativity with the farmer. And a good farmer can make bad dirt look good. You know, growing up, I'd ride around in the truck with my dad, and he's very open with me about business as well. But he'd always, he, he's a farmer at heart. And I know every piece of dirt in our area because that's what we do when we drive around he'd point out the field and he'd explain the dirt to me you know good bad you got to do this you got you know it dries up it cracks whatever it may be so i think now to answer doug's question is whatever the problem is one way or another you can make something happen with the dirt right if it's a little alkali or a little high water table i've seen russell harris develop a lot of ground with high water table and you know, with a good plan and and um, the right type of engineering, guys that have the creativity and the vision can make it happen. Um, and now with the ground, now it's a little different now. It's not about just having good dirt, it's having about, it's about having good water. So if you have good water and you have some sour ground, I think, you know, with some creativity and the right, um, the right mindset, you can, make anything productive but like Mr. Dieger said you got to put the effort in and you got to make the investment consistently you know to make that dirt stay fertile and stay farmable because it will revert back to being bad ground if you neglect it yeah so it's interesting how farming or in agriculture you know I just found out Mr. Dieger's 90 years old but there's some things that you guys say that aren't ever going to change you know about if it's about family business or about dirt or about even about cows, some things will just never change. You might milk them differently, but the business model, the debt to equity thing is not going to change, you know. So it's been pretty awesome. And you guys are talking about stories in the 50s and 60s, and I was born in 1990. <laughs> so you know, some things just don't change. It's pretty neat. Yeah, so um, I agree with all that. And I, I got a, one other question. You know, in business, there's a ro lot of relationships. Um, I am very firm on building good relationships with people I do business with, right? I, I think that's really important. Um, a lot of times we will mess up, but it's, it's making it right and it's being fair with things. And um, my mom, I was talking to her last night about, you know, some other attributes of my grandfather. And I really liked one thing she said to me as she said your grandfather was a very competitive competitive person in business i said what hobbies did you she had he have she said business <laughs> uh, and uh um and on that note i kind of feel the same i love business and if, it, if it's something you enjoy it's fun and I always tell people who I interview or I'm doing things with, if you enjoy what you do, and my dad said that to me a million times, it's not work, right? And uh, I bet I can tell both of you guys have had passion in what you guys have done. But one of the um, underlining questions would, my mom said my grand, grandpa was competitive and always did what he said. Tough sometimes in that but never let it get out of control and always kept the respect of people he's done business with. And I've 
I'm 34 now, and I've talked to many people who've done business with my grandfather in the past and said, your grandfather always did what he said when he made that decision. And so, Grandpa, I'd like to ask you, you know, your mindset in dealing with people and, you know, as us young guys, we, we have to deal with a lot of people. We have to make decisions. How, what was your mindset and how you made decisions, how you dealt with people on that in business daily? I don't know. I always like figures, you know. So that uh, I always like figures, and I think when I was in school, I never get a hoop about school, but I love math, and I still have some kids. They said if they didn't know, they asked me for math. I didn't like algebra, but when I got into uh, just plain math, I just loved it, and I've always my head has worked for figures. But you know, I've made mistakes some serious mistakes in my life that I wish I wouldn't have, but uh, that I can't change. But just, just thank God for where I am now. Yeah. And and just your dealings with people, what was your mindset when you're dealing with an individual you're buying something from or just doing day-to-day business? What, how'd you keep a, a strong relationship with them, but yet kept it business at times? Well, I think I was brought up through my dad the guy you're doing business with, if he's kind of questionable, don't even mess with him. Because he says, you'll find out. And that's pretty well true, I would say. That was nine out of ten times. You're kind of questionable. That, that wasn't the guy you should have dealt with. And so you learn that through the, through the time, and you'll learn that too. And I'm sure Sipe has seen that. Yeah, Keith said earlier that most dairy people know each other, which is true. But along with that comes an awe of accountability. You're dealing with a large group of people, and if you mess up and you don't admit it and you don't make it correct, it gets to be known. And so that's kind of an accountability thing that we have um, sitting on our shoulders, which is a good thing. That is a unique thing with ag business is a couple things. One, your business is out in the open, so you drive down the road, you can't really hide a bad crop or a bad field <laughs> or a weedy field, so, you know, you can... Other businesses, you're inside of an office and they can't see what paperwork you're doing or whatever. Farming's out in the open. It kind of goes the same thing with relationships. You know, you burn, there's only so many bridges because there's only so many people in ag. So you burn a couple bridges, you might burn the only bridges you have. Uh, That's a very unique thing. And, you know, as a young guy, I like that because it's still personal, right? You do something good, a, a good chunk of the market either will hear about it or it's known. You do something bad, a good chunk of the market will hear about it and it's known. So um, that's pretty unique, especially now where everything's digital and people don't talk face-to-face anymore. So it's something that uh, keeps your feet on the ground and keeps everybody honest. Yeah, I think accountability and dealing with people, is, it's every day, whether it's business or it's with your family, your friends, your wife, your children. I, I, uh, I think it's so important kind of maybe ending up you know kind of finishing some things out um i'd like to hear from both of you guys if what would be in a 20 second 30 second um uh, advice you would give youth today maybe start with you uncle Sipe, and uh what you what you would ask out of them and you would like to see well, that's, uh, that's quite a question, Doug, and I, I think really stepping back and looking at it, um, 
we have a lot of young people today that uh, some of the older people put them in a category called snowflakes. And that's something that is probably largely true. I think millennialists have been uh, coddled perhaps more than they should have been, and it's to their detriment. I think they should take a step back and see what the one and a half percent of the population is doing. Agriculture, it's a wonderful life. It's a, it's a life that is very fulfilling. It puts you in touch with reality. And just like we touched on a moment ago, there's a large community which interacts together. It's a, it's a very, very wonderful thing to do. And it seems to be very attractive to get a college degree and go to work for a large corporation but corporations tend to be bloodless and they will take your soul and they will milk you dry and it's completely different and opposite of what agriculture has to offer. Thank you for that response. Uh, that was a beautiful response actually. I, I, agriculture is amazing and it is different than the corporate world. And I think we want to keep it that way, right? That's what makes it fun. That's what makes it personal. That's why we're sitting here right now, right? And so, Grandpa, advice, what would you tell me or what would you tell um, the young generation out there right now? Because you've done it. You wake up in the morning and you have the zeal to go at it. To say, I'm going to do my best and do do at least or better than my neighbor does. Yeah. Yeah, because you, you're, you, you've got to beat, beat the other guy. Yeah. You kind of hate that, but, uh, you know, I know I've had friends of mine say, isn't it, don't you have enough? You know, it's a hard question to answer because, you know, they, they've been staying status quo. And that sometimes is a tough question, but you just have, like my wife always says, just ignore it. You know, I always thank uh, my wife for that. She says, just ignore her. She says, you're going to have that. Anybody that's successful in any business is going to get comments like that. So you just try your best. So Keith, uh, he just said something that I think a lot of people, we, in this day society, they are giving every kid a trophy. doesn't matter if you were first, second, third, or last, you get a trophy. In business, not everybody gets a trophy. The bank, they they say the, the person who loans you the money is not the person who comes if you don't pay it back, right? And <laughs> uh, that being said, stating back to competition, my grandpa just said, I want to be better than the guy next to me. Not out of malice. I know that. I've My grandpa, I've... Been in, I've done, lived my life next to him. I grew up next to him. Nothing was out of malice, but yet it was out of pride, right? Because it's okay to be first. If if you're doing it in a respectful and dignity and, and you know, I know my grandfather gives a lot to God. He always told us that and I believe that. And um, I think... A lot of us young people, like you said, need to get out of bed, need to go to work, and need to have the mindset that it's okay to be all in in what you do and not tiptoe around. And that was an awesome answer, Grandpa. 
I appreciate that. And that's how you trained me as a young child. And I saw the way he kept everything clean. I saw the way he kept his facilities, his dairies, I mean, his fields. They were always clean. He always told me, keep it clean. Keep it clean, you know? And I um, have not lived up to all his expectations, but it's, uh, I will tell you, that's one thing I always learned from him on that. And I don't know your thoughts on that, where you see youth and... Yeah, I mean, you kind of hit it where everybody wants a participation award and a gold star and all this and that. And, you know, competing with the guy next to you, well, in your guys' generation, you know, there was no social media. There was no websites or anything. So you were competing probably with literally the guy next to you, your neighbor. But I also think the way you guys are, from what I've heard in a little bit today, is you guys competed against yourselves because you guys knew you guys always do better, do better for your family. I mean, that's pretty obvious in, in uh, the words that you guys spoken today. And I feel like that's the ultimate co- competition is can you be better than who you were yesterday? Can you be a better operator? Can you learn from that mistake that you made where you lost some money or you lost efficiencies and improve and make yourself better? And then, you know, it's always nice to have a guy you're racing against to just kind of give you a metering stick of how well you're really doing, you know, the neighbor or... That's why I like farming, right? You can see if that guy's uh, corn crop is as uniform as yours or if his stands is good. And it's a friendly competition because, you know, you need relativity. You know, and if if you didn't see that guy down the street that is a really great farmer you're trying to compete with, you might think a 10-ton corn crop was good, right? So um, we have that. I believe that here we have that uh, just that deeply rooted competitive spirit that entrepreneurial spirit and obviously it's about making money but it's about being better than you were yesterday and then in turn kicking your competition's ass at the same time yeah, so there's nothing wrong with that yeah that's a great feeling and these guys are seriously the type of you guys are the type of people that america and american agriculture were built on guys that put in 16 17 hour days First generation, got here when he was four years old with 10 brothers and sisters. You know, those are stories you don't hear anymore. The the story now is, oh, Joey went to school and showed up on time all year long. Oh, congratulations, right? So you guys really put it, you guys really put it in perspective um, about what real hard work is and what real, a truly successful life is with your successful families and it's, it's, it's really amazing. You know, Doug and I got about 80 years of work to catch up. Yeah. Man. It's amazing. <laughs> we have a lot of uh, work at, you know, they always say we have this many years of experience in this room. Um, like I said, my grandfather, who has um, been my role model um, my entire life. And uh, I'm sure Uncle Sipe is a role model. Um, I've got to not only thank you for this, I've got to learn more about you. Your granddaughter is helping us here, and she, I can tell that you raised your children right because the way your granddaughter works. Um, And very rarely do you see a 21-year-old girl in college who's willing to go out and pull weeds. That was the first thing she told me when she started here. I'm like, no, you're going to do something else. But... I mean, it's evident in 
your families because I'm fortunate to get to see them. It's evident in your properties. It's evident in your pride and how you feel. It's evident in the way you dress. It's evident. Um, I'm saying evident too much, but they. Uh, <laughs> uh, my wife told me you always say the same words over. I'm a, I'm a habitual person, but uh, you know. That being said, the way you show, the way you do things, the way you've carried yourself um, throughout your course's business, it, it, it just shows it can happen. You did it with your your hands, right? And your minds. My grandpa always said, use your mind. Use your mind. And uh, so now we want to do something special. The reason we called this podcast The Toast, and this one is even perfect because I want, I, Grandpa, how many gallons of milk do you think you've produced in your life? <laughs> oh, my cows did. I, I, yeah. I, I just, so, um, we have a glass of milk here. Um, we, when we meet with somebody, whether it, if it's a grape guy or an almond guy, we might have almond milk. But today is special because we have two legendary dairy producers in here have not only been great dairymen, they've been great farmers, they've been great men, they've been great to society. Um, and uh, this has just been a pleasure, huh, Keith? Oh, man. It's awesome. Yeah. It's like royalty in here, man. <laughs> Learning the wisdom. Because we're seeing, too, just quick math, you know, it's like uh, 80, uh, 80 years on uh, Mr. Dieger's side and 60 years on your side, rough 65. You, were, you retired six years ago, so... 60, 65 years of your side, so we got 150 years plus of experience just right here at this table. Yeah, and, and, and ours, we have 10. We have 10 to contribute on In ours. today's work, it would be like 240 because they work 16-hour days. Right, yeah. <laughs> So we want to toast to you guys. I want to say something that we have a glass of milk here, and I want to toast um, Uncle Sype and my grandfather and Keith. This was fun. Our first podcast couldn't have been better. I'm with... Um, my mentor, somebody I love so much, my grandfather. And uh, we want to toast you to a glass of milk, mm -hmm. and we want to thank you for this. Yep. Thank Cheers. you guys very much. Pleasure. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.